Welcome to the MPC Podcast. I am Tim W. Gill, pastor of Medora Pentecostal Church, and I'm thrilled that you've joined us today. Here at MPC, we are committed to bringing hope and building lives. One way we do that is through this podcast. Thank you for listening, for sharing and reviewing what we do here. It is our desire to connect with you, and you can find us on Facebook, or you can find us at our website, medorachurch.com. It is our prayer that today's message inspires you, encourages you, and that the kingdom of God is advanced in your life. Let's get right to the word of the Lord today. All right, 2 Kings chapter 23, verse number 28. If you are there, say, I'm there, preacher. Now the rest of the Acts of Josiah and all that he did are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah now whenever you read a statement like that you're about to read about the death or the passing of a king King Josiah in his days in Josiah's days Pharaoh Necho king of Egypt went up against the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates and King Josiah went against him, that Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh killed King Josiah. He slew him at Megiddo when he had seen him. Whole sermon right there. What do you do when there's a battle that you lost? His servants carried him in a chariot dead from Megiddo and brought him to the city of David, Jerusalem, and buried him in his own sepulcher. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's stead. I'm going to preach to you for a while on the subject of this death of King Josiah. But let me just pre-warn you that my title, my title for this message is rather colorful. And so just go with me on this title. Preaching to you for a few moments on this title, Stupid Battles. Stupid Battles. Say Stupid Battles. We've all been there, haven't we? Bless God. Lord, we thank you in advance of answered prayers. We thank you for the birthplace of the miraculous, the presence of God that is here in this room. Speak to us and let us have ears to hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And God, once again, let it not be Joel Revely who preaches this message, but Lord, let it be you, the Lord Jesus Christ, who speaks the word through me. Speak to me. Speak to all of us. Take my mouth. Take my voice and my lungs. And Lord God, proclaim the message as you see fit tonight in Medora, Indiana, Medora Pentecostal Church. And all the credit, all the honor, and all the praise goes to you. We all say in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Before I preach to you about the death of King Josiah, let me at least spend a few minutes upon his life. In the book of 1 Kings, chapter 13, there was a very different man from King Josiah named King Jeroboam. And King Jeroboam, those of you who were here on the first night, I've come full circle, haven't I? On the very first night, I mentioned King Jeroboam, didn't I? King Jeroboam split the kingdom of Israel, and King Jeroboam took 10 out of 12 tribes and went north and formed his own kingdom, the kingdom of Samaria. And those of you who heard the Friday night message, you 
heard me detail and describe how King Jeroboam set up two false altars or two false idols in Israel. He set up two golden calves, one in Dan and one in Bethel, and he made false altars to those false gods, false altars that were not effectual. Mark this down, dear friend. A false altar will not have an answered prayer. You will not find an answer to your prayer at a false altar. All right. And at this false altar, God had something to say. God sent a man of God to prophesy. And in verse 1 of 1 Kings chapter 13, behold, there came a man of God, not from Samaria, not from the ten tribes, but from Judah, in the place where truth was still being preached. Have you ever wondered why certain churches birth a dozen ministers and others don't? Let me answer that prophetic question for you right now. Truth ministries come from truth-preaching churches, from the places that have not set up golden calves and built false altars to false gods, from Judah, from Jerusalem, from the houses of God, from the true temple of worship, from the place where God's name is named. There is where true ministers and true ministries are birthed and still come from. That man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. And Bethel means the house of God. But Jeroboam had set up a false god in Bethel, meaning the house of God. He had set up an idol to a golden calf. And there Jeroboam was standing by that altar to burn incense. Now I must describe something to you. Jeroboam did not want to hear from God. And God is a gentleman. God is the first gentleman of the universe. If you don't want to hear from God, you won't. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. If you want to be deaf, God will permit that. And so God sends this man to the altar. And in verse 2, this prophet of God speaks very carefully. Since Jeroboam doesn't want to talk to the man of God, since King Jeroboam doesn't want to hear from God, instead, the prophet just talks to the altar instead. And that man of God cried against the altar in the word of the Lord. And he said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, a child shall be born unto the house of David. Now this man is talking about his competitor to his face. King Rehoboam and the house of David is the competition. They're his enemies. And he came and walked all the way from Judah and stood in front of him and and talked about the people he didn't like. Sometimes the word of God will tell you something that you may not want to hear. But he said it. And thank God for the prophetic word. Thank God that prophets are not politically correct. Thank God for the men of God and the preachers who will still stand in the gap and stand in the pulpit and preach the undiluted, unedited truth of God's word. He said, a child shall be born to the house of David. And what is his name? Josiah by name. In this scripture, you read the prophecy of the birth of King Josiah. And upon thee, upon this false altar, he would offer the bones 
of the priests. He would offer the priests, burn their very bodies upon their false altars. Men's bones shall burn on that false altar. The men who proclaimed the falsehood, the truth of that false altar would then, as they lived by that false altar, so they also died and had their memorial by that false altar. As I live in the ministry, so also I am recalled in memory in that ministry. As you live, so shall your life record be here on earth after you pass. So those ministers, their memories of ministry should be recorded by their false deeds. Moving on now, that was the prophecy. That was the word that God gave, that Josiah would do all that. And so when you read all that, my picture of King Josiah personally is as a man who is almost a nigh superhero. He's this man burning priests on their false altars, upending false worship, undoing evil deeds. I have a picture in my mind, an image of this figure of a man picking up these false priests and slinging them onto their false altars and lighting that false altar on fire and burning the whole thing to an Old Testament barbecue crisp. But is that going to be the actuality? Is the image going to be the fulfillment of that word? Oftentimes, the fulfillment of prophetic utterances is not what we think it ought to be. And that's how we miss it. When God fulfills something, it always looks different. Second Kings 22. Let us see fulfillment of God's prophetic word. Second Kings 22 and verse number one now. When Josiah became king, he was only eight years old. I was expecting a superhero, and instead, I got a third grader. That's not what I ordered. That's not how I thought it would go. And that's how it works, ain't it? You see, we want a tree, but God instead gives you a seed to plant in the soil of your life. And so in the name of Jesus, if God has given you a seed, plant that seed in the soil of your future. Water it with your prayers and your worship and your tears. And just see what God shall do with that seed of faith. Bless God. A third grader, an eight-year-old, he began to reign. He did that which was right in the sight of God. But the real story begins when he's a bit older. In verse 3, it comes to pass in his 18th year. Now, if I am mathematically and theologically correct, his 18th year, 17 years later, he'd be about 25 years of age. He'd be in his mid-20s. In that year, he had his first official major royal decree. He gathers the royal court. He gets Shaphan, the scribe, and he sends him to the house of the Lord and says, go to Hilkiah, the man of God, the high priest, that he may add up the silver which is brought to the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the door have gathered of the people. Everyone say building fund. That is this in that scripture. That's an Old Testament building fund we're talking about right there. Okay, in verse 5, he says, Let them deliver this unto the hand of the doers of the work that they that have the oversight of the house of the Lord to repair the breaches 
of the house. That's the whole purpose. Take the building fund money which the doorkeepers have gathered at the door of the temple and let them put that money to good use and repair the breaches of the house. So the first royal act of King Josiah was to repair the house of God. Now I've heard it said all my life that you can't have revival during a building program, but that's wrong. And here's why it's wrong. The scriptures disagree with our human thinking, don't they? They're about to have revival in the middle of their building program. And dear brother and dear sister, all you have to do in the middle of all that is become a doer of the work as this verse describes. You may not can preach or sing on key, but all you have to be is a doer of the work of the house of the Lord. And that is sufficient for revival in your church. Be a doer of the work. They all began to work. They all began to repair the broken things in the house of God. And in the midst of that, a discovery is made. Verse 8, Hilkiah the high priest runs to Shaphan the scribe and tells him, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. If you read the parallel passage in 2 Chronicles, it heavily hints that that book of the law is the Old Testament, the books of Moses. They found most likely one of the final remaining copies of the Old Testament. A few kings back, there was an evil king named King Manasseh that attempted to destroy true religion. Manasseh persecuted true believers of the one God message. We believe that he even burned copies of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And so very few copies of that Bible book remained. For that book of the law to be hidden in the walls of the house of God, you have to figure that some man, some priest, some preacher risked his life and may perhaps have given his very life itself to keep the word of God. And long after the opinions of King Manasseh became dust and nonsense and political foolishness, the word of God was still there to be found where? In the house of God. Long after our current political trends have gone the way of the dodo bird, the word of God shall still stand the test of time. It shall remain. They found the word of God. Where? In the house of God. Where do you find the truth of all ages? In the house of God. Where do you hear the word of God preached? In the house of God. Where do you find the supernatural answers to the questions of the ages? Right here in this book, preached to me from the pulpit. In the house of God. Plus God. What do you do? When you find the word of God, you read it. They began to read this word of God. He read that book. Verse 8 says he read it. What do you do when you have a copy of the Bible in your house? What should you do, bless God? You should read it. Everyone say hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's good preaching right there, bless God. In verse number 10, Shaphan the scribe then showed the king, and he said, Hilkiah the high priest, deliver me a book. And he began to read out of that book before King Josiah. He began to read the Old Testament Bible to King Josiah. Now, I can't describe this 
from your experience. But for me, when you enter the house of God after an absence, it is like a balm of fresh air breathed into your lungs. It is like cool water that you are washing your hands with. You feel it. It is not simply words in your ears. It is spiritually tangible. You feel the presence of God and you must respond when you feel that unction, when you feel the wind of Pentecost, the wind of God, the Holy Ghost surging through you as the preacher preaches and the singers sing out loud the songs of Zion. You feel it. You feel his spirit. You feel that presence. You feel the Holy Ghost and you've got to do something. Verse 11, that king, he heard the word and something came over him. When he heard the words of that book, no one had to tell him what book that was. He knew when you actually arrive in a truth preaching church, no one has to beg you you know, you know the difference. You still remember what it felt like in that camp meeting when you were only 10 years old, when you first received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. You still recall the night that you were baptized in the name of Jesus, and that presence of God just washed all the way through and through throughout your body. You still recall what it felt like to roll in the altar and dance in the Spirit and talk in tongues and run the aisles and shout out loud hallelujah you know what it feels like you know the holy ghost the king knew no one had to describe this to him and he responded when he heard the words of that book he took his royal apparel. He took his own royal robes, which would have been more expensive than an average house in the ancient world, and tore them to symbolize that he would not be led by money and royalty anymore. He tore money and royalty anymore. Symbolically, his very wardrobe, his identity, his outer garments, how he presented himself. He tore who he once was was into pink gonna have a new identity now i'm gonna be a brand new king what i was i am no more we have a word for that in the apostolic church we call that repentance when you are not the same as you once were when you make a heavenly decision and a holy choice i'm gonna have a new life i'm gonna have a new future i'm gonna be a brand new man Repentance, repentance is real. He repented. He obeyed the word. There was prophetic word. There was confirmation later on in this chapter. And then the king does something. 23rd chapter, verse one. And the king sent. They gathered unto him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. How many say all? It's like that he invited all the people, all the leadership to the house of God in the city. Verse two, the king went up into the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah, how many of them again? All the men, no exemptions, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, priest, prophet, and people, both small and great. It's almost like everybody had to go to the house of God. Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but let us all 
come to the house of the Lord. When they did, he made a covenant. He made a covenant there. And the king stood by a pillar and he proclaimed in this covenant, they should all walk after the Lord and keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of their heart and all of their soul. And all the people stood to the covenant. And here became the crux. Now King Josiah is going to work. Do you understand he's only 25 years old? A 25-year-old man is leading an entire country in nationwide revival. Don't tell me you can't do it too. I believe God can do it in you. I've seen 25-year-old evangelists and missionaries preach the gospel to foreigners and then receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Then have their lives changed. You can preach. You can work for God. You can be a soul winner and a Bible study teacher. God can use our youth. God can use you. In verse 13, this man, Cain Josiah, goes to work on all the false religion in Israel. He takes these high places, false altars, where false religion was practiced, and he defiles the places of false worship, it says. In verse 14, he broke in pieces the images. What does that mean? It means there's some idols you can't just take off the shelf and put in the attic. You gotta smash them to bits. You gotta do whatever it takes. Say whatever it takes. Whatever it takes to destroy that system, that framework of false thinking and false belief and false religion in your life. Do whatever you have to do. It'll be personal for each and every one of us. Consecration is extremely personal. But whatever you have to do, just make heaven. Don't take a risk that could endanger your kids and your grandchildren. Do what you have to do. Smash the idols. Cut them up in pieces. Get it out of your house. That's what King Josiah did. He cut down the groves and he filled their places with the bones of men. Then in verse 15, he spies that false altar, doesn't he? He sees that altar of Jeroboam and he sees the sepulchers the tombs where those false priests were buried and he pulls the bones out of their very sepulchers in verse 16 and puts the bones of those priests on that false altar of Jeroboam lights it on fire and burns them to ashes according to the word of the Lord which the man of God proclaimed as God spoke it it happened I had to preach all of this to now bring you here. I have preached the life of good King Josiah. He was a good king. He was a good man. He believed in truth. He believed in holiness. So what happened to him? I now begin the sad part of this sermon. Second Chronicles chapter 35 and verse number 20. I read to you 2 Kings 23 in my introduction I now read the parallel passage of King Josiah's death in 2 Chronicles 35. It describes the same events. We call that in theology a parallel passage. All right. After all this, after all this, 
after he had finished his life's work and prepared the temple, repaired the house of God, shored up the broken places, had revival, burned the bones of the false priests after his greatest work for God, an unexpected problem arrives. The pharaoh of Egypt named Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight Charchemesh, the king of Assyria, by that great river Euphrates. And Josiah, he's watching all this go on. Here's King Josiah. Josiah belonged to the old school thought. Anybody who crosses through my territory, I get to whop him on the head. That was what he thought inside of his Josiah brain. He thought, any danger that comes through my land, I'm going to whoop up on them. I'm going to do it. That's what he thought. And he thought he had the right to. He thought, if I go to war against Egypt, God will be with me and I will defeat the Egyptians once and for all. He had all of these expectations and assumptions. But oftentimes, the word and the will of God defy our assumptions and expectations, don't it? In verse 21, the king of Egypt didn't want to fight. He says, I'm not here to fight you. He sent an ambassador, didn't even come himself, saying, I'm in a hurry. What are you doing? What have I to do with thee, thou king of Judah? I am not coming against thee this day, but against the house that I have war with. He says, we have no problem. I don't want to fight you. I'm going to war against the Assyrians. Leave me alone. And here's the funniest part of the whole thing. For God, capital G, that word is Elohim in the Hebrew, the Old Testament. Our God, Jehovah God, told me to do this. God, your God, commanded me to do it now. Make haste, speedily, quickly. Therefore, forbear thee. Stay back from meddling with God who is with me that he destroy thee not. So we've got a paradox, a conundrum right here. The king of Egypt said, God's with me, and God told me to fight the Assyrians. Leave me alone. Egypt is a type of false religion and a type of the world. And you would think going to war with Egypt is a good thing. But he's saying, nope, I have no problem with you. I don't want to fight you. And God's with me, and God told me to fight the Assyrians. Now, he had a decision to make right here. Something didn't add up. Nothing made sense. When your life is faced with a confusion, a perplexity, a decision that does not add up, you should go to the one place in all the world where life's mysteries can be answered. Go to the house of God. He just spent years of his life, over 20 years, repairing the house of God and preparing the temple. This would have been a good time to go there and seek the face of God. This would have been a great time to send for Hilkiah the high priest or some prophet in existence in that time. Send for some man of God. Send for some prophet or high priest who can preach the word and proclaim thus saith the Lord to you. That's a great time to talk to the man of God when your life is crazy and confused. This would have been an awesome time to find the altar of God and offer sacrifice and spend time at the altar and a wonderful time to seek out God in prayer. Where was his prayer life right here? Why didn't he pray about that? 
and when I don't pray and don't go to the altar and don't go to the house of God and don't go to the man of God, do you know what type of decisions I make? Stupid ones. Stupid decisions are made when I don't ask God what I should do. You know where this is going. In verse 22, it makes it clear that God spoke to Necho. He didn't hearken unto the words of Necho from the mouth of God that Pharaoh had heard from God. And even though, even though he did not send for a prophet, God still spoke to him by the mouth of a Pharaoh. If God can use a donkey, God can use a Pharaoh, bless God. God can use anybody, anywhere, at any time that God chooses. God will find a way to warn you one final time before your feet step off the edge of that cliff. One final time before you make the worst decision of your life if that statement must come by a pharaoh or even a donkey god will warn you god will send a trumpet blast take heed take heed to the word of god take heed to his voice take heed to the warning he didn't Josiah didn't. He would not turn his face away from this fight. He liked this fight. He desired to fight this fight, but he disguised himself. It's a sad day when an apostolic Pentecostal or even a preacher has to disguise themselves and attack somebody on the world wide web using some username on Twitter or Facebook or social media or blog post. It's a sad day when you feel the need to disguise yourself. Who you are when you are alone is who you are. Who you are when you are in disguise is who you really are. When nobody sees your privacy, who you are, that's who you are. Josiah hid himself and nothing good usually happens when we disguise ourselves. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ don't be ashamed to be apostolic and he goes to the valley of Megiddo and came to fight now I called this message stupid battles for a reason God never told him to fight this battle God tried to warn him against it. And stupid battles have stupid consequences. Stupid battles are fought with dumb weapons and idiotic words and wars of gossip and swords of our own opinions. And at the end of that dumb fight and stupid battle, you're going to face consequences that you never intended to meet and receive out in your life. Stupid battles happen on landscapes that God never called us to. Stupid battles happen between people that God didn't want us to be at war with to begin with. This war was not a point of God. And what happens if I fight fights like that? Verse 23, the first consequence of a stupid battle. First consequence, he got wounded. First consequence of a stupid battle is you get wounded. You receive scars that God never proclaimed or meant for you to receive. He got hit. He got shot by the archers. Yes, there are some wounds that may not be our fault, but all the same, there are some wounds that I am to blame for. I fought a fight that God never told me to fight. I fought a war of words with some other preacher 
picture that God never called me to. I found my feet on the landscape of battlefield that God never proclaimed or intended for me in my ministry. That was a stupid battle for King Josiah. He got hit and not just hurt, not just wounded. He said sore wounded, say fatally wounded. That's what that means in modern English. And he was dying. The consequence of stupid battles is your life is imperiled. They tried to get him back. They tried to bring him back to Jerusalem, the city of David. His charioteers put him in a second, likely a faster chariot. But all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put King Josiah back together again, could they? They couldn't get him back to the city of David. And you know this. He perished. He died from a conflict that God never called him to. Second consequence of dumb battles is that lives are lost. It might be your life or it might be somebody else, but lives are in the balance. And while it is simple to preach this passage, his physical life was lost. I must also warn you that it might not be your anatomical body and your anatomical biological life that is lost. You may lose your married life and you might be single again, dear brother. You might lose your prayer life and your depth and closeness with God might perish on that dumb battlefield. You might lose some relationship with somebody else or even your family members, but some significant portion of who you are and what makes you the man that you are might get spiritual gangrene and fall off of you because you fought a fight that God said, no, don't do that. Third consequence of this stupid battle is in verse 25. Jeremiah lamented for King Josiah and Jeremiah preached a great funeral, but hang on just a Holy Ghost minute. He had Jeremiah the prophet and never sent for him. You know what that is? That's stupid. He had the man of God right there who had visions and dreams, entertained angelic manifestations in his life. This would have been the moment to send for the prophet, to send for Jeremiah, send for the man of God. But he didn't do that. He didn't do it. He died instead. And I have read the awful arithmetic after this. I have read the awful math after this. And after King Josiah, four kings reigned. Four kings reigned after King Josiah for a total of 23 years. And not even one of those kings was a good king. Not one of those four kings after King Josiah did that which was right in the eyes of God. And after 23 years of four bad kings, I read the king of Babylon arrived at Jerusalem and leveled the temple flat. The house of God at King Josiah spent a decade or more of his life renovating all of his legacy, all of his inheritance, all of his life's work was pulverized by foreign invaders based upon one stupid battle that that man of God fought that God told him not to fight because he entered a fray of battle that was not the will of God. His life's work, even the house of God itself, was lost. The price of wrong fights is I lose something precious in my legacy. But why did God care about this anyway? 
Why did God care about Egypt and Assyria? Why did God send the Pharaoh of Egypt to fight the king of Assyria? Why did God let King Josiah die? What was so important about that war? Why did God do all that? If you have your Bibles, back to verse number 20 in this same chapter. Where was the battle supposed to take place between Charchemesh and Necho? It was supposed to happen at that great river Euphrates. Say Euphrates. Those of you who know your geography may know that Euphrates does not flow through Israel. That battle was not going to happen in Israel. If you have a modern map, Euphrates flows in the modern country of Iraq. And in the ancient world, the name of Iraq was Babylon. That Euphrates River was in the country of Babylon. Had Josiah just left him alone, the Pharaoh of Egypt would have gone into Babylonian territory and gotten a foothold outside of the king of Babylon See, in the margins, in the unseen, God was already building walls of protection and defense for his people. And if I just let God be God and leave those fights alone, God was protecting me and God is defending you. Stand with me. Had Josiah left that battlefield alone, Israel would have been defended against an unknown and unseen danger 25 years in the future. He did not know that the king of Babylon was coming. But God did, and God was moving the chess pieces of political systems in the ancient world to defend Israel. God will move mountains to protect his people, and you are his people. But do you know what blocks the hand of God? Unanointed conflict, unappointed wars of words, and verbal fights that the Lord is not pleased by. All around this room, I'm going to give a different altar call this evening. I'm going to ask you all to come and join me up front. And as you make your way, I want you to ask God one question. Ask him, is there one conflict that God wants you to release in your life? Is there one fight that God is saying, don't fight that fight? Ecclesiastes 3 in verse 8. There's a time for war and a time of peace. Don't pull out the spear and the sword when you are in a time of peace. Accept the time. Know the timing of God. As the World Wide Web says, IGT, in God's timing. Know the timing and the plan of God. I must beat my sword into a plowshare and my spear into a pruning hook. Put down the instruments of death and receive the will of the Lord. Find a place to pray right now, standing, kneeling, or seated. Ask God, am I fighting a battle right now that you haven't called me to? Am I in the midst of a conflict that is not in your will? Whatever it be, if God pricks your heart about some circumstance, release that battle. Release that argument. Release that fight. Let go of that stupid battle.
thank you for listening to the MPC podcast. We trust that today's message has inspired you, encouraged you, and strengthened you in the Lord. We would like to invite you to join us again by simply subscribing to our podcast, and we encourage you to write a review if it has been a blessing to you. Again, you can find us at medorachurch.com to learn more about our ministry.